Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Colm Toybin, whose latest novel is House of Names. There are nine novels, two collections of stories, Recent ones, Nora Webster, Testament of Mary, Empty Family, Brooklyn. Brooklyn, of course, became a very successful film, which I'd like to talk a little bit about. Also, Testament of Mary was a play that was in New York and at ACT in San Francisco a couple of years ago, and we talked about that at the time. This latest book, House of Names, is the story of Agamemnon, Clytemnestra, Orestes, and Electra, the house of Atreus, the Oresteia. It has been told for a long time in plays and in books by Sophocles, Aeschylus, Euripides. Calm Toybin, you decided to tackle this. Has this been something on your mind for a long time? No. I was reading one of the new translations, and the introduction mentioned a play called Iphigenia in Aulis, which I'd never read. And it's a late play written by Euripides. And it is as though he wanted to make amends for what he had done to Clytemestra in his version of the story, where Electra, her daughter, gets all the best lines, and Electra's in a rage against her mother. This takes us back earlier and gives us all the motives for why Clytemestra might want to have murdered her husband, Agamemnon. In other words, that... Agamemnon wants the winds to change so that his ships can go to Troy, so the Trojan War can begin. He is the king. He is the leader. He consults the oracle, and the gods say, look, we can change the wind, but you must sacrifice your beautiful daughter, Iphigenia. So he contacts his wife to say, bring our beautiful daughter. We have found a husband for her, Achilles the warrior, and bring our young son, Orestes, and we will have a celebration for the wedding before we begin the war and get all the seamstresses and get all the clothes, get everything ready. She does, and, and she's completely fooled. We watch her being fooled, and when she finally finds out why she has come, as she decides that if he comes back victorious from these wars, she will in turn murder him, and she will plan this meticulously. But when I read that, I thought, I could work with that. You know, in other words, that all those motives and all that narrative and all, all that business of moving from being the sort of loving wife, you know, loving her daughter, her son, into being the sort of monstrous mother, that transformation I could work with. And then once I'd done that opening section, I realized it wasn't enough, that I needed to go back and look at the story of Orestes, her son, and what happened to him because he ends up murdering his own mother. And I wanted to build up a character who is not a psychopath, but who is capable of doing this. Someone with no strategy, who's easily led, but is all the more lethal for that. And so I just kept working. At what point did you stumble across Iphigenia at Aulis? I mean, was that 
during the writing of Nora Webster afterward? Or? I would do anything during the writing of Nora Webster to stop writing the book. You know, in other words, there was a lot of interruptions. I interrupted it to write Brooklyn. I interrupted it to write The Testament of Mary. But it was also that I was working at the time of The Testament of Mary with a good number of actresses who were doing the parts, including Fiona Shaw and including Blanca Portillo, who did it in Spain. I was I was there for a lot of those nights and just watching how you would build that part. So I became interested in the idea of, of how voice is created, how you make the voice of someone who is ostensibly powerless, the voice becoming all the more powerful because the voice might only speak once. So that idea was still fresh in my mind after the Testament of Mary. Is that the reason why both Clytemnestra and... Electra are first person, but Orestes is third person close? Well, Orestes is the submerged one. He's the son who really has no strategy, as I said. It's very difficult to give him a voice because he doesn't have enough sensibility to start with. He's a young boy, then an adolescent, and then a young man. He's always in the shadows so that if you let him speak, it would be like something out of William Faulkner where he would miss the point, he would ramble, he would say things that weren't entirely relevant. Whereas when Clytemestra speaks in this, or her daughter, they have a plan, a strategy, they remember everything vividly, and they know what they need to say. So with him, I went inwards, I went into what he saw, what he noticed, what he registered, what he remembered, how he felt. So it's all inward, it's all inside him, as though he doesn't feel entitled to speak. Whereas the other two, oddly enough, do feel this huge entitlement to speak, if only once. Was there any connection then between the three, including Mary, are all powerful women? They all have a very specific point, but you want to make sure that their voices are very different. Well, Electra, in my version, is a bit more like Ophelia. You know, she's dreamy until she isn't. I mean, she becomes her mother gradually and slowly. She takes on some of the mantle of her mother. But for the opening, I wanted Clytemestra to be a very powerful figure, almost afraid of nobody, whereas Mary is afraid. There is fear in her. But I wanted some of the sentences to be like that, to be as though she might only speak once. With Electra, then I wanted her voice to change as she's speaking. She's consorting with the dead. The ghosts are coming. She's in her room with the ghosts. She's uncertain of some things. By the end, she's almost as monstrous as her mother, already to weave. And her weaving is highly effective. The pattern she makes is the one she wishes to make. This Electra that you've created is your Electra, obviously. In terms of how the novel focuses, we start with Clytemnestra, we move to Orestes, then we go back a little bit to the same moment when Orestes is kidnapped, and then we move on to the end when Orestes comes back. In that stretch, that final stretch, we're seeing that transformation in her. How difficult was it for you knowing you were going to go from point A to point B? You were going to take Electra from Ophelia to, <laughs> to Gertrude. Yeah, I was going to take all three of them on a journey because Clytemestra really does begin as a woman taking her daughter to a wedding and longing to see her husband again. 
by the end of the book, she's ordering the most extraordinary atrocities. And she's fearful and she's uncertain, but she's also determined. In turn, Orestes moves from being this little boy who, you know, wants to play mock sword fighting to being someone who actually is capable of murdering his own mother. And also, Electra changes from being someone who really wants to consort with her dead sister, the ghost, her dead father, his ghost, to being someone who actually wants the reins of power in her own hands. So that all three of them change in the book as the book goes on. In other words, there is a sense of a curse on this house and the curse that's on the house of Atreus is affecting all three of them. So this spiral of violence actually eats into their very spirits in the book. It isn't merely something they do. It's something they almost long to do. Calm Toybin, there's an element in terms of writing fiction where you create a character and then the character doesn't speak to you, but what happens is the character is sufficiently created so that the action of whatever happens happens because the character has been created. In this particular case, when you're dealing with a story in which you know going in, because it's thousands of years old, the high points of the story, it's kind of a reverse engineering of character to plot. What I wanted to do more than anything was to write a novel where you wouldn't have to have read any of the original sources. So even if you think, oh, my God, I never even went to high school. How could I read a novel about ancient Greece? So I wanted that to say, well, actually, you could read this book. That's the first. Thing. The second thing is I was following the story reasonably closely when I was dealing with Clytemestra. I was following that Euripides story. With Electra, I'm also following the way in which she has been created. But in the Orestes sections and in the ghost of Clytemestra, I'm completely inventing. The thing is that even though there are versions, as you say, by Sophocles, by Euripides, and by Aeschylus, we actually don't have any idea. There's no scholar who knows where was Orestes when he was away. His sister, Electra, is waiting for him to return so she can deal with her mother. But no one knows where he's returning from. Now, this is a sort of gift to a novelist because you think, actually, I can begin to imagine an early life for him. I can build this character because I don't have anything to go on from the original Greek sources so that I can have him kidnapped. I can take him to this sort of place where other boys are kidnapped. He can escape from there. And then he can find a sort of refuge with the sea on three sides. An old woman is protecting the three boys who escaped as they're protecting her. A sort of haven which goes on for some pages away from the violence of the families into this place where they can actually live at peace. But it's obviously a place where they cannot stay forever. So you just have this sort of temporary time when Orestes can actually feel happy and move from adolescent to young man. But that is completely invented. That is completely from my imagination. I have no source for that. Uh, the Guardian, in a review, said that the place where he's kidnapped is sort of like an Irish public school and the terrain around the old woman's house feels more Irish than Greek. Oh, yeah. I didn't feel confined by the idea 
of filling things with goats and feta cheese and olive trees. I'm not interested in that as much as I am in the psychology, in the drama between the people, so that in that dream landscape he wanders into, there certainly are elements, uh, pure elements, because I'm using moments from Irish mythology in that as well, the story of the children of Lir or the story of Cúchulain. I'm bringing any legends I can just to simply give him a different space to inhabit. So it's quite important that I am using bits of Macbeth, bits of Hamlet, bits of Coriolanus, really anything that occurred to me from that high period of sort of legend, myth and drama I used in this book. And that was all conscious. Oh, yeah. You made a decision not to have the gods, but to have ghosts. You can't have the gods in a novel. The novel from its 18th century roots is a secular form. Um, It loves choices. It loves chances. It loves humans confronting their destiny. It loves losers, chancers. It's interested in money, how people make money, in love, how people fall in love or how, how to get married or they don't. But it's really bad on the gods. Just think about Jane Austen, even though they're all these clergymen. No one prays in those books and the gods don't come down suddenly and do something in those books. And so in this, I really had to get the gods out of the book quite early because otherwise it would be all oracle. It would be all appealing to the gods and there had to be a glossary at the end describing which god was for what. What happens is that Clytemestra very early on in the book realizes she doesn't believe in this, that for her it's over. For her there are gods, but they have nothing to do with us. They're actually busy. And therefore it means that she can then begin to plan what she's going to do without having to consult any oracle and I can write my novel without having to bother about what god will she be praying to now and who is she praying to. I took the idea of the ghost from Hamlet that when Orestes returns to his family, he is an uncertain, uneasy young man in a palace whose father has been murdered, whose mother has taken a lover. So when I said that Electra goes from Ophelia to Gertrude, I was not off at Yes, all. exactly. She goes from Ophelia to Gertrude, as indeed the mother is Gertrude. He is Hamlet wandering in the corridors. And indeed, he finds a young woman who is also an Ophelia. And one of the things about Hamlet that's, that's fascinating is where there are as, as though tectonic plates at work where the, one of them is medieval Europe and the other is modern Europe where Hamlet himself is playful. He has full autonomy. He has been away. He clearly has studied. He has, he has a wonderful mind. He has a lot of will and determination even if he procrastinates. But he believes in his father's ghost. He believes that this ghost comes to him and has to disappear once dawn light comes up. So that you're getting two worlds clashing with each other. And, and I realized from that that I could work with a ghost. And part of that problem was technical, where I have Orestes murdering his mother. Now, I went back and looked. I could not find any novel in which somebody murders their own mother who isn't a psychopath. I mean, I really did look and so. so what am I going to use? What am I going to go on? And then I started to imagine, what, what would you do if you murdered your mother? Where would you go that night? What would you do? Would you have your dinner? Would you eat? Would you sleep? No matter what you do, it's, it's cliche. It's, it's our, you feel uneasy. You feel guilty. You feel exhilarated. You feel, no, no, don't, don't do any of that. Leave, leave all that to the reader's imagination. Just leave it blank. Turn the page and it's the mother 
has returned to the world as a ghost and she's wandering the earth and she doesn't know who killed her or why or how. All she wants is one more time to be with the son, Orestes, even though he's murdered her. But she wants to be with the boy who she still loves or wants to see one more time. And she wanders in search of that. And that that becomes the aftermath of killing her if she doesn't actually go. There's a moment where the ghost wants to talk to Orestes and she finally does, but what she says is irrelevant. Yeah. What I wanted to do then was to bring that down. In the Oresteia, in the original version, the Furies come after him when he murders his mother. Now, I have a problem with that. How do you deal with that? So what I wanted to do was bring everything down, almost to piano music. Get the orchestral out of here. Just have Eric Satie or some, some minimalist piano music where the boy who's murdered his mother becomes even lonelier than before. His sister doesn't want really anything to do with him. His best friend, Leander, really doesn't want to see him either. He's not needed anywhere. The elders, who are the sort of jury in this situation, don't want him in the room. They have convicted him, and they have decided this young man must be kept away. And when his mother does appear to him, instead of it being a moment of pure reconciliation, which would give him some relief, she doesn't say anything. She says almost nothing. She says a few times, no one, no one. And he's trying to reach out to her, to touch her, to be with her. He wants something back from her. She'll give him nothing. Is that idea of moving from the Furies, which is the noisy business of retaliation, into the silent business of guilt. His punishment is not that the Furies pursue him, but that nobody wants him which is something I think uh, in the modern world we might know more about, the, just the idea of somebody being left alone, somebody almost being in solitary confinement, even if he's not necessarily imprisoned, but he is in, in a sense in a sort of solitary confinement. The character of Leander, that's your invention? Yeah. He does have a friend, Orestes, but he doesn't do much. But I wanted a much stronger figure in Homer, Orestes is, is a hero. Novels don't do heroes very well. We like people who might be heroic in their dreams, that are foolish in what they do, who really are sort of warped, you know, who fail in various ways. And therefore, I wanted someone who would lead him, who would become his close friend, who in a way he would fall in love with and be with. The other boy does all the planning, all the leading, all the, so that Orestes tends to follow. He's my invention, and indeed his sister is my invention, and indeed his, his grandfather, his family, are my invention. And Mitros, the other boy? Yes, indeed, he's also my invention. In, in, in other words, I needed a world for Orestes. I give him two friends, and I give the two friends a great deal of emotional hinterland, sort of families of their own, and things happen, very brutal things happen to their families, which are completely out of my imagination, which are not from any Greek source. One of the reviews I read said that Leander takes on some of the elements that Orestes has in these other accounts. Yes. Yes. In other words, what I want to do is subdue Orestes, submerge him, make him the one who follows, make him the dreamy one. If there is a hero in this book, if there is someone who's totally decisive, who decides all the time what to do and then does it, it is the figure of Leander. 
but he's not one of the main protagonists of the book. He is one of the side characters. As I was reading about Agamemnon and his death, I'm aware that there probably is a connection, uh, not at your end necessarily, but with George R. R. Martin, the Red Wedding in Game of Thrones. Are you familiar with that at all? No, it's been mentioned several times. And I don't know either House of Cards or Game of Thrones, and I've never seen The Wire. So I'm, com- I mean, I'm just not that sort of guy, and I should watch these things. I mean, that's what other people seemingly do at night. I mean, it's weird. That's that's what people do at night, but I don't do that at night. So I have never seen Game of Thrones, and people tell me it's good. If there is a relationship between the original story and the death of Agamemnon, locking the gates. If that's in the original, then Martin stole that for his Red Wedding rather than you, Colm Toybin, going back to him. I mean, you were going to the yeah, original. Yeah, I remember listening to the guy, is, is he called David Simon, who wrote The Wire, yeah. being interviewed saying that he had gone back to the Greeks to, to look for, I, I suppose all of us were looking for archetypes, for archetypal stories, for, for, for a sense of the bedrock mythology on which our civilization doesn't rest. I mean, rest would be not the word. So that I think those writers for TV actually went back to the same source as I did. Uh, And um, indeed, so many translators have gone back to it and probably many more novelists than we think have gone back to it. No matter what you do, once you start working with it, it's dynamite. It's dynamite in the sense that you realize this story is one of the great stories, the House of Atreus and how they feel about each other. I realized it had not been done before in this form where in slow time as you read, instead of it happening on the stage or on, or on TV, on the screen, you follow sentence by sentence as the sentences build up the motives um, for what these characters did to each other. We can assume, and I wouldn't know where to look, that modern novelists over the past 50 years or even filmmakers, I wouldn't even know where to look, have taken the same story and transposed it into whatever other environment, whether gangsters of the 30s or... Yes, I think that even those performances by people like Betty Davis or Joan Crawford, where there's this sort of arch woman who really wants to do her very worst at a certain moment. I mean, even you get something like the postman always rings twice. I mean, anything which involves a woman taking a knife or a gun into her hand, I think you have to look at the figure of Clytemestra. And indeed, any relationship between, say, a daughter and a mother, you have to look at Electra and and Clytemestra. Do you think Shakespeare was looking at Clytemnestra when he created Gertrude? Oh, there's no chance he wasn't. I mean, there's absolutely no chance. The sort of way in which Electra feels so jealous of her mother being with Aegisthus, her lover, is so close to the way Hamlet feels watching Gertrude with Claudius. He was a great borrower, Shakespeare. I mean, some of those stories he had, he worked from various sources. Of course, he was terribly well educated under that late Elizabethan system of education so that he would have known all of this. The character of Aegisthus, what is he like in these other versions? 
In other versions, he's just the lover the mother takes and he's quickly dispatched and murdered. So he's almost a cipher. Clytemestra needs a lover. Here's a lover. He's her lover and then he gets murdered. In a novel, you can't really just do that. So I had to build up this guy who's, first of all, totally charming. He will charm the birds from the trees. He's an old enemy of Agamemnon. He's down in the cellars. He's, he's a prisoner. He's held. But he's never good at being held. You know, he can tame birds. He can tame servants. He can escape very easily. And, of course, he's immensely handsome. So that she doesn't just take a lover. He's really more handsome than she is, you know, so that it's that wonderful moment in anyone's life where you realize someone who's out of your league is at the other side of a room. And you think, will he or won't he? Is he looking over here? Is he not looking over? I don't think he's looking over here. (laughs) And so you're, you know, you're dealing with that absolute romantic moment that all of us have lived even in our dreams. You know, that someone as handsome, as sexual as he is, as feline as he is, will actually cross the room and become her lover. And that's what he does. He's completely untrustworthy. He will have sex with anyone, with the guards at night or with the servants down in the cellars. He's just forever moving around the palace. And of course, he's the only one who survives. No matter what happens, it seems, Aegisthus is always going to survive. I think we all know somebody like that. There is another character called Toybin who doesn't have a name, but he appears throughout the book, and that's this one guard. And this character is not only Aegisthus' lover, but the character who takes Orestes out of the the castle or palace uh, to free a couple of people, Leander's family. He's there in the background and he never comes to the fore. Because he's a cipher, he's sent. In other words, he has no agency. It's merely that he does whatever he's told. So in this book, anyone who just does what they're told isn't named. There are enough names. Poor old Orestes thinks that Leander has asked him to go and rescue his grandfather. But it turns out it was Electra, his sister, all the time, that she's the one pulling the strings here. She is not Clytemnestra? No. The person who, who gets the guard to actually go and have these two men released is probably Electra. It could be Clytemnestra, but he he thinks in the end, because he sees the guard with his sister, he realizes that perhaps it was his sister who did this ordering, his sister slowly developing her own strategies and her own guards who work exclusively for her. And so this guard is one who does that. And then he finds him in bed with Aegisthus later on so that this guard will do what he's told. But that opens up a question. If Electra is the one who convinced Orestes secondhand to rescue Leander's family, is it possible it's Electra who had them killed rather than Clytemnestra? Yes, it's possible that Electra is doing much more than her mother or has become a sort of shadow of her mother. But what's even more possible is that her mother has ordered the big killings. All she wants to do is test her brother and open up a space whereby men are released, which will thus 
frighten her mother into some sort of action. She's involved in a battle to death with her mother, using her brother as a pawn in that. And he doesn't know, and the reader in the end doesn't know, which of them is ordering Orestes around. But of course, Electra is the one who gets her brother to murder her mother. Electra is the one who wins in that particular battle. So what's going on in your mind when you're writing this? Are those questions coming up? Are you in the back of your mind saying, I know who it is, and then when it comes out, you realize, oh, I may not? I know who it is. I know that it's Electra who orders him to release the men and sends him to do all of that. But it's her mother who orders the big massacres, the killings of the families. I know that, but I'm leaving it open so that it's not fully clear who it is. Okay, so I'm not going crazy. No, 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 you're absolutely not going crazy. But the thing is, I have to leave this as a sort of web because Orestes simply never gets to understand who it is who's manipulating him. And that's vital in the book. What I'm trying to get you to do is to see this from his point of view, where he is completely puzzled by whether it's his mother or his sister who is running this particular world. And he simply doesn't know. That's why the reader is left in a state of confusion, because so is Orestes. Why is House of Names the title? I liked the title when the old woman, where they stay, when the boys escape from the sort of boarding school. It's clear there have been many other people in her house, and she refers to the house. All the men have been taken for the army for the war, and all the others have fled, leaving her behind because she was too frail to go with them. And she says this was a house of names. And she's almost going to name. And then she just doesn't. Who was in the house? All the people who were in every room. And it's true, too, with the palace itself, that Iphigenia was there at one point, Agamemnon was there. The whole idea of these being houses of names. But also, when the mother returns, she cannot remember her son's name. She says, I cannot remember his name. The name will not come. But when the name finally comes, she can whisper it, Orestes. So it becomes a house of names, of his name again. So all of their names being used like that. When you're writing a book like this and you're focusing the way you are, are there resonances in modern life where you can look and go, oh, I see how modern life relates to myths like this? Very much so. Where I was um, reading, for example, Robert Caro's The Passage to Power, the account of Lyndon Johnson from, say, about 1960 to 1968, and watching, say, his time as vice president, where, you know, he isn't taken seriously by the Kennedys. Then the assassination occurs, and then you have this sort of grieving widow And you have this man who moves into power without knowing he wants to pass civil rights acts without knowing the Vietnam War is coming towards him. In the meantime, you've got the figure of Bobby Kennedy, grief-stricken, desperate in some way or other to deal with the death of his brother, not knowing that he in turn is going to be assassinated. So that you have that, say, is one thing. Another thing you have that I come from a country, Ireland, that had two civil wars in the 20th century. In one war, my family was involved in the first war. 
And in the second one, I was involved as a reporter, you know, where I walked along the border between the North and, and I wrote a book about that. But also this is happening when we're watching not world wars, not wars between countries, but wars within countries, where we're watching the gang wars in Mexico, where we're watching ISIS moving across borders between Syria and Iraq. We're watching what's happening in Libya. We're watching what's happening in Aleppo watching what's happening on the Ukrainian border so that all of those wars seem like strange things happening, almost intimate civil wars. Oh, I think absolutely I'm aware as I'm writing this book that this book has been written in a time when that idea of intimate killing of a house or a country being divided in on itself and a spiral of violence that cannot be stopped that is killing followed by killing followed by killing followed by atrocity followed by atrocity, which I think is something that we have been following, say, over the last decade or more um, every day when we turn on the news or read the newspapers. Toward the end of the book, Electra wants to kill the Gistus, of course. <laughs> they all want to kill each other. Oh, my God. But Leander says, no, enough killing. Leander just says early on even, when they escape first, we must not kill anybody. But of course, they kill the guard. And of course, they kill two other men who come. But when he finds out that Clytemestra has been killed, he said, who said that you could? And when they say, well, the god said, he said, oh, stop that. This must stop. And when they want to kill Aegisthus, who really has been behaving treacherously, and of all of them, he's, you think he's certainly going to be killed, he demands now that they just incapacitate him, that they break his legs. And actually, Aegisthus ends up at the meetings where he becomes quite a powerful figure. But there's one moment towards the end of the book where Orestes looks over at his sister, Electra, as Aegisthus is speaking. And the look they give each other suggests that they will be dealing with this Aegisthus in the future. But who knows? Also, Orestes, it seems, has developed a sort of a hunger for further killing. So Aegisthus would be one. Also, the guard who's been fooling him, he thinks I'll deal with him later at some other point. So in the aftermath of the book, even though there's an element of peace breaking out, of a baby being born, of, of, of all of them there together, I don't think it's fully the genie of violence has been put fully back into its bottle. It never is. I mean, the ending of the book, I kept thinking when he says no more killing, I kept thinking of how eventually the wars of Ireland stopped. People had just had enough killing or Yugoslavia was the other example. Yes, and but in the Irish one, I mean, if you follow it closely, there's every so often there's one killing still, you know, that it hasn't been fully put back in its bottle. But yes, but you're absolutely right that in the end, in general, that the peace process has been really effective, as in Dayton really worked with the former Yugoslavia. So that the only country that seems will never, I can see no way, is Afghanistan. That if you follow it from, say, the 1830s onwards, it looks as though everyone thinks they can just invade Afghanistan and everyone within Afghanistan thinks they can rule Afghanistan. And that trying to predict a peaceful democratic solution for Afghanistan, I think would be very foolish. Well, at this point, I wouldn't even predict whatever's going to happen in Iraq and Syria, but of course- Or Mexico for that matter. Or Mexico. Yeah, but you assume 
because of the broader range of history and putting aside what might happen to the planet's climate, which changes everything, that at some point it would burn itself out. I mean, Salman Rushdie once said when I asked him about Islamic fundamentalism, he says 70 years that sort of thing burns out. Yes, but the images stay with us whether we like them or not. I mean, today in the New York Times, I read that the Americans, as one of the things they did to prisoners was they didn't just put them in a box, they put insects into the box. Now, I didn't know that. Now, that image won't leave me. In other words, even though things, yes, uh, yes, Salman Rushdie is absolutely right that that, that 70 year cycle is probably right. But the image of some of the things that ISIS did, and ISIS was particularly good at letting us know what its most abject cruelties were, but some of the things indeed waterboarding or indeed the extraordinary American prison system where people are held for so many years in solitary confinement, that all of those images won't leave us. They, they actually live with us. No matter what happens, that that aftermath comes as memory. I'm trying to deal with some of those images here where there are certain very brutal moments in this book, which I think are moments that we have to live with, that, that these are the things we did or people did and, and that happened in time and are still happening in our time, even if each time the violence will play itself out. Colm Toybin, Brooklyn was a very successful film. Did you have any work in it? <laughs> None. No, I did not. I wanted Nick Hornby to write the screenplay. He wrote the screenplay without consulting me, which was absolutely the right thing to do. I didn't have a phone number or an email address or anything. I saw the second draft, which is very close to the final draft. In other words, he worked very well on this. I have a tiny cameo. I went up to a shooting in Montreal. I went up to Montreal and um, there's a tiny little scene where Sir Sharon is going into America for the first time and there's a sort of Irish man wearing a cap in front of her. And that's me. There was one singer who sings the song in the film, who's an Irish singer called Irlo Linord, who plays in a band, or sings in a band called The Gloaming. And I wanted Irla, and I did suggest Irla. I think that's my own, the only thing that I suggested that's actually in the film. And I think that's the way it should be, that unless you're going to go all out as the screenwriter and the novelist, that you stand back and you let other people take over. And the thing is, yeah, you have to make judgments. You know, in other words, that the producer, Finola Dwyer, John Crowley, the director, and Sir Sharonan, all three of them have been involved with emigration. Emigration has really affected them. I mean, I mean, Sir was born in America. Her parents took her back to Ireland. John Crowley is Irish. She lives in London. And Finola was born in New Zealand, where her mother had emigrated from Ireland in this exactly the same year as Ailish in Brooklyn. So, that it, it, I mean, no one was making this film for no reason. I saw a lot more of the people who made the film in the aftermath when we were doing publicity. And uh, it was very, we, we sat up late sometimes just talking about our own lives in relation to the film. That, that was sort of fascinating. You liked the film, I take it. Yeah, what's funny is that there's a moment that Nick Hornby added that isn't in the book, which is the end. He brings the end another week on that I don't do in the book. I just leave it to your imagination and he brings it on. It's very emotional. It's very happy. It, it's a lovely uh, image of completion. And uh, I find I'm a sucker for it. I've seen it about six or seven times. And each time I see it, 
I tear up. I go, oh, my God, this is so great. Oh, Lord. They're hugging each other and they're kissing and I, I feel good. And uh, I, I feel like um, what, a, what a creep I was not to have put that into the original book. <laughs> but um, at least it's in the movie. Are any of your other books optioned? I wrote a screenplay recently for a film that was made that opened at the Berlin Film Festival called Return to Montauk, which is directed by Volker Schlondorf, who directed The Tin Drum, who would be best known in America, I think, as a, he won an Oscar for The Tin Drum. So he directed that. It's, it's an original screenplay, which, which I hadn't done before. So, so I wrote an, an, an original screenplay for that. And then there are always people who have you know ideas, but um, there's nothing in the pipeline. Return to Montauk is just recently. Just now, it's opened at the Berlin Film Festival. Oh, so it has not opened, for, it might not open for a while in America then. Exactly, yeah, but it'll open at some point in America. I mean, it'll open sometime soon in America, yeah. Are you working on any plays right now? I'm back with the Greeks sort of thinking about something. I, I, had, a, I had an interesting morning in SF MoMA we're just wandering around in those spaces, watching those very intense, moving from Agnes Martin to de Kooning to Rothko. Something came into my head, you know, so that I'll just show it to you now. That's the opening. Look, just that page, that page, and that page, and just there. So I didn't have the opening, which I got today. And so I've been waiting for it. I didn't know if it was going to come or not. It's a strange process. It's where something you've had in your head moves into rhythm of its own accord. You can't force it. You can see it's, it's the Clift Hotel. I just happened to have it in my pocket <laughs> and as a notepad. It. Just, just a notepad where I had written down various addresses. I thought, oh, my God, do I, have, do I have anything to write on? And I realized I had this. So you can see I had a pen and I just, you, you, can, actually, you, you can actually read it if you want. I can read it. If I wait, if I am still, if there is not a sound, my sister comes into this room in the hour before dawn. So there we go. I'll probably change it in some way or other, but at least I I now have a rhythm. I have a sound for the thing. And all I've got to do now is work. (laughs) So this comes as a gift. The rest comes as just pure drudgery. One final question. Uh, novels, have you started work on the next? Yeah, I have a novel that I think needs some work. I, I read it over and thought there are a lot of things missing in it. And so I'm going to do that work. It's um, set between contemporary Germany and New York. I think it's the first novel I've written set more or less now. I mean, it goes back into the character's childhood. I'm trying to think about that idea where we're talking about of countries that did get over a spiral of violence. I think Germany is the most extraordinary one where German democracy post-war has really been a model democracy. We can see it now. How did this happen? Who caused it to happen? And so I'm just interested in that idea of a time after 1945 when, when a group of people come together to make Germany into the great country it is now. I keep thinking this strange that we had Hitler Roosevelt and then we turned it around to Merkel Trump. Yes, I know. It's not just Merkel Trump, but it's also Trudeau Trump and it's and it's also Macron Trump. And it's also in Ireland we have our first our gay prime minister who's Leo Varadkar, who's 38 and whose father is Indian. So the idea of Ireland of all countries having a prime minister who's gay and whose father's Indian, but he himself actually is either in the center or center right. So we'll see how he does in power. But nonetheless, it is a great step forward for Ireland that 
in the campaign he fought to become prime minister, those issues, his sexuality was not an issue. His policies were the issue. And in England, we have this bizarre situation which is still ongoing, and we don't know what's going to happen. We have poor, sad Mrs. May, who's a poor, sad imitation of Margaret Thatcher, who certainly, when I was writing Clytemestra, I certainly had Margaret Thatcher in mind. <laughs> but M Mrs. May would be one of her handmaids only, I'm afraid. She would not have a name. <laughs> no, she would be one of the people who Mrs. Thatcher would pull her strings. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.